thankful for the sounds of meeting and greeting. Let me encourage you to branch out occasionally in your meeting and greeting. Some of you are missionaries on meet and greet time, and I commend you for that, heading to different regions. And um, I strongly recommend that you get around and uh, meet some people that you don't usually get to say hello to, and uh, maybe the Lord will give you a whole new friendship. I was also thinking this week as I was praying for our church and praying for you all that um, just really encourage you to be opening your homes. Uh, hospitality is a Christian virtue. It's a fruit of grace in your life. And uh, to allow people into your home or to ask people into your home that you don't know is true hospitality. And I'm sure there are already people here at Grace Church that you don't know and uh, that you haven't met that maybe you've seen and you don't even know their name. Uh, that's why we have a directory and why we would be able to help you at the office and open up your home and feed them a meal and, and be able to share how God's grace is active in in your lives. Uh, it's just a total blessing. It's a rich reward. And I hope you'll take advantage of that. Sure, it's good to be home. Boy, it's good to be home. Uh, I was away all of last week uh, through the weekend and came back on Monday uh, midday. Jared Torres and I headed to North Carolina into uh, the Asheville area, Black Mountain, North Carolina, and had a, just a tremendous week of camp. Um, I preached six times in four days, and uh, my partner in preaching was Kurt Gebhardt. He also preached six times in four days, and so there were 12 different preaching opportunities. That's a lot of preaching, and um, students were just receptive. The Spirit of God was clearly doing um, a special work through the camp. It was Probably the most rewarding on my side of the coin from a preaching standpoint, most rewarding camp I've been a part of. And so I really appreciate you praying for the camp, praying for my preaching, uh, for freedom from the spirit. Not every preaching opportunity is the same and the spirit has to empower the gifts that he's given. And so I just I really thank you. Several of the students we believe came to know Christ through the week and uh, several other students who, to my knowledge, at this point, have not turned their hearts to Christ, or have not bowed their knee to Christ, uh, were troubled, very troubled. And uh, in the old Puritan way, they were troubled souls, aware of their sin, and uh, the preaching was uh, focused on Christ and on the gospel, and so I'm just so thankful for all that the Lord did. It was just a special time, and camp is such a great time anyway, and uh, I've always enjoyed camp. I was saved at camp, and I know many of you probably were as well, so thank you for uh, praying for us as we traveled and uh, for being a part of, of that trip. Just a special. I had 180, I think 160 or 180 junior hires every morning uh, sitting in front of me. And they call them middle schoolers in Florida, but they're junior hires, 7th, 8th, ninth graders. And uh, just a really sweet time to go through four different texts with them in the morning. And then in the evening, twice with everybody combined. We, we met every night with everybody combined. Kurt does too, and I did too. And uh, just... Just a great all-around experience, and I'm thankful for what the Lord did through that week. Jared and I had great fellowship. We went that weekend then to Greenville, South Carolina, where I went to school at Bob Jones, and uh, spent the weekend there with some friends, some very dear friends in pastoral ministry, and uh, had the opportunity to meet with my uh, my discipler, my pastor, and uh, my preaching hero, whose name is David Wickham, and uh, just had just really rich opportunities uh, while we were away. So thank you so much. It's good to be home though. When you're away, you know, you're where God wants you because you just want to get back. Uh, so I'm thankful to be back and thankful for my, my family's sake as well. This morning is a unique 
opportunity. We're in the middle of this What About series, and uh, I'm appreciative of what uh, Pastor David did last week with you in opening up Scripture and dealing with the topic of ethnic profiling or racism within Christianity. I think it's a genuine need. It's something that we have to think about. The gospel has to touch our lives at every level. Uh, To wear the label of Christian as Christ follower, the gospel would influence every manner of our walk. Every part of us should be affected by the gospel. And I'm I'm just grateful for that particular focus last week, that the gospel has everything to do with the way we look at ethnicity, the way we look at diversity within our culture. And uh, it will be countercultural and it will be Christocentric. It will put Christ at the center for Grace Church to be a church where racism, by the world's definition, is wiped away and where God's definition of the nations is brought to the forefront. All are sinners saved by grace. And uh, we read this morning, every tribe and tongue will gather at the throne. Uh, There will not be a racist bone in any glorified body. All right. Heaven will be multi-ethnic and it will be to the praise of the lamb. And we ought to be involved in that even now in our lives. And so I'm thankful for what David did last week. It was my plan this week to come back, my original plan, to come back and to focus this Sunday on free will, human free will. Oftentimes we're asked uh, as a church that places such a high, uh, a high view of God, a high view of God's sovereignty, his intimate control and knowledge of what is taking place in the events of human history. What about human will? And what about human free will is usually the way that question is asked. And, and I do want to cover that, and I'm excited to cover that. There is some very uh, helpful information from our scriptures that I think will inform our minds and help us to think God's thoughts after him when it comes to human free will. But as the week went on, and as uh, we re, uh, re-entered the fray, uh, my heart and the discussions that many of you have brought to us was drawn back to the subject that was covered last week. And I am not going to improve or do a round two on Christians and racism. But I do want to stay in the arena of human relationships as believers. I want to talk this morning and I want to study with you this morning from one paragraph regarding our relationship to other human beings. And I I, I want to back up just a second. And I think David and I, as we prayed this week and we're concerned about the implications of last Sunday's study, I want to emphasize with you that when we talk about our relationship to other individuals, when we talk about our relationship to any other human being, regardless of the skin color that God gave them or the nation in which they were born, or the status which they bring to our relationship. No matter what, we must engage in those relationships as kingdom missionaries. I mean, Matthew 10 has just continued to ring in my ears. Why is it so critical that the gospel influence my view of ethnic diversity? Because you are a kingdom missionary, and your job is to take the message of the kingdom to the nations, and God has placed the nations right in front of you. We must view ourselves and our role on this earth as those who take the message of the gospel to all the nations. That means that when we relate to people, no matter where they come from or what they look like or 
how valuable they may seem to be to me as a person. I must engage them with one thought in mind, and that is the glory of God through our relationship. If they're an unbeliever, through the magnification of Jesus Christ in the message of the gospel. If they're a believer, through the magnification of Jesus Christ through Christian fellowship. And these are necessities for us. And so as David kind of struck at a, a, a very big picture of ethnic diversity and the Christian's relationship to the nations... I want to take it a step closer and move a little bit more into our day-to-day lives and maybe deal a little bit more intimately with the way we think about people. To do that, I want us to turn in our scriptures this morning, if you'll join me, in James chapter 2. James chapter 2 this morning for our time in the Word of God. James is painfully practical. This is one of our earliest studies that we did together in adult Sunday school here at Grace. And I I have never gotten away from James. This is actually the first book that I've worked through expositionally when I was at Grace Community Church. And uh, it has continued to be my friend. And it is a, a practical word that you just cannot run away from. And so this morning I want to go to James chapter 2 and I want to deal with the issue of partiality. And to bring that into a common vernacular, because I don't think we use that word much, I want to talk about favoritism. I want to talk about the Christian and playing favorites. If last week was about the Christian and prejudice, that is treating some people differently in a negative sense because of their ethnicity, this week is about relating to people apart from favoritism, apart from setting out to play favorites, to put some above others. And this is a human problem that has existed from the time of the fall all the way to right now today. This is a problem that meets us in the green seats, in the little theater, at a worship service, at Grace Church of the Valley. This is here with us today. In fact, we may have engaged in this already this morning. Favoritism is so ingrained in our culture, so ingrained in our system of thinking, so ingrained in the grid through which we see life, our worldview, that it is difficult even to identify it sometimes in our lives. And so I I, I hope that this morning the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and give you understanding and give me understanding freshly so that we can respond to people in a way that fits the gospel that flows from the gospel. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Most of you probably know that. He is the head of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, He's the pastor of Grace Church of Jerusalem. And uh, this is the very first church. So I guess they could be officially first church of Jerusalem. For some of you, First Baptist would be more fitting. So First Baptist Church uh, for some of you. Right? This is the first church of Jerusalem because this is the church that came out of the, the, the day of Pentecost. This is the church that came from the 3,000 plus that were saved on the day of Pentecost when the apostles stood up and proclaimed in a number of different languages, miraculously through the power and gifting of the Holy Spirit. They proclaimed the gospel in languages before unlearned. 3,000 people are saved, and of that group, there are a number who make their residence in Jerusalem. Those believers gather together. James is the leader of the church at Jerusalem. 
We know this from Acts, where Paul comes back to the elders at Jerusalem. He comes back to the apostles, and James is the spokesman for the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem is not like any church. In fact, the church in Jerusalem had very few meetings like this. Because not too long after their conversion and probably their first meetings, persecution began to be railed against the Christians at Jerusalem. And so they were scattered out. It would be as if our government turned and said, Christianity is illegal and we will hunt down all churches and disband all churches. You'll lose your jobs. You'll lose your home. We'll even take your life if it is convenient. And that's what took place in Jerusalem. And so what happened was the body at Jerusalem at that first church under the pastoral leadership of the apostles, the elders, and with James as their leader, they scattered. James 1.1 tells us that they are the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion. They were scattered. They ran for their lives. And they began to meet in various locations in much smaller groups and probably much more irregular meetings. And they desperately needed pastoral help. They needed a word from the leadership about what it was to be a believer, what life looked like, and what could be the test of their confession or their profession of faith. Therefore, we got the letter of James. God inspired this word through the Spirit. And James penned these words for the believers scattered from his ministry all over the known world at the time. He deals with some of the most practical issues and chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 finds us in one of those amazingly practical portions of this letter. Let's read beginning in verse number 1. You follow along as I read out loud and let's read verses 1 through 13. My brothers... Show no partiality or favoritism. Show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse number five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are the words of God for us this morning. If there is one primary idea, one thought, one 
big idea that flows from verses 1 through 13 for us this morning. It is this. Favoritism is forbidden for the follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, how simple can it be? Favoritism is antithetical. It is forbidden. It is the opposite of what the life of the believer should look like. And yet it is so ingrained in us in the way that we deal with people, the way we interact with people, because we have not consciously reminded ourselves of our kingdom missionary status. That I believe this text meets us right where we live. If ethnic profiling is a problem for some, favoritism is for all. This is permeating every part of your society, your culture, and no doubt it has infiltrated even our ministry here. Verse number one makes that big idea quite clear. My brothers, James calls the Christian brothers and sisters throughout this letter, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, that is a heading verse. Verse one is a heading. It is it is the grand idea that he's going to spend the rest of his time unpacking for us. And in that grand idea, he says something very simple. It does not fit for you to hold in the same hand the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and favoritism. Those two cannot be gripped in the same hand. They are. They are opposite. They are contrary to one another. They are mutually exclusive. This is powerful for us. Literally, it says in verse number one, do not with favoritism hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. So don't hold favoritism in the same heart that you hold Jesus Christ. Don't think that that's okay. Don't think that that's normal. Don't think that that is Christ-like behavior. That is... Anything but Christ-like, as we'll see through our study this morning. Favoritism is not equal, just as a careful note as we start, to friendliness or kindness to people. That's not at all what we're discussing this morning, of course. In Ephesians chapter 4, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I mean, this is like scripture memory 101. Be kind to each other. Kindness is not favoritism. Favoritism is kindness to some Because of the view of who those people are. So it is valuing some above others and giving them extra kindness. This is not dealing with the virtue of kindness as a fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This favoritism is antithetical to saving faith. Because in verse number one, James used a very specific title to talk about his brother. This is amazing. I mean, this is the half brother of Jesus. This is a guy who grew up in the same house with Jesus. And we know very little about Jesus upbringing. He grew in stature and in wisdom, just like everyone else, except he didn't have any sin influence in his life. I mean, think about it. If you're junior higher. They're in the building. If you're a 10 year old who's not in the building, your junior hires are already here, no doubt. Your 10-year-old had no influence of sin that distracted his mind, that cluttered his mind. Think about the way Jesus would have grown up. It would not have been him zapping his friends in the game because he wanted to win. Okay, that's not what took place. He was a normal child, and apart from um, the sinless perfection, James grew up with his brother Jesus. And yet in this verse, he says, favoritism matched up with my brother 
cannot go together. And why is that? Well, it's because of what he calls him. Notice what he says about Jesus in verse number one. Faith in our Lord, that is master, Jesus, the Messiah, that's Christ. The Lord of glory, the master of all glory. All right, here's here's what James says. You cannot say I'm going to play favorites within the body of Christ, within the meetings of the body of Christ or even outside of the body of Christ in your relationships with human beings. If you have faith in the master who is Jesus, who's the Christ, he's the promised one, he's the Messiah, and who stands as the Lord, the one who reigns in glory. He has a high view of God, he has a high view of Christ, and that view of Christ restricts him, and his faith in Christ restricts him and must restrict us from favoritism as God's people. Now, he gives us a great picture for this, and I love word pictures, and James Uses them all the time. It's like James gets out the whiteboard and just goes ahead and draws us a picture. All right, here's what he says in verse number two. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place, which I think is closer to the front, that would be a good place, right? For some of you. (laughs) Okay, you say, sit in the good place. While you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Pretty clear picture, pretty basic to our understanding. One person walks in and they're decked out to the nines and they're wearing their wealth. Gold rings were not easy to come by. Fine clothing was not a commodity that was common to most people. It was not something that was familiar in their culture. And here, this guy rolls up in the nicest of chariots, shows up at the house meeting, gets out, and he has the nicest clothes on. And the believer, who is personified here without a name, immediately goes into overdrive. You sit in this good spot, and I'll sit right beside you. And second guy comes in, and he is wearing his poverty. He's wearing his lack of status. There's nothing to notice about this guy except for the slight odor that comes off of his ratty clothes. And instantly the same Christian, the same Christian who holds the faith of our Lord Jesus the Christ, the Lord of glory, says, go stand over there. Or better yet, just sit here at my feet. Which is a place of ultimate humiliation. So the picture is obvious for us and the the prohibition is obvious as well. Favoritism and Christianity do not go hand in hand. So what about my life as a follower of Christ and my relationship to people? Status doesn't matter for those who are kingdom missionaries. Whatever the world places as the mark of those who should be influential means nothing. For the believer. James provides three reasons why we should get this. I mean, he could leave us with verses one through four and we'd go, oh, man, I've totally done that. I have played the favorite. I have shown partiality. But he doesn't rest there because he's a pastor. And this sermon is longer than just four verses. He wants them to get it. 
And so he explains to them why they should get it. Why is it that your conscience should be awakened that when you play favorites, when you treat certain people differently because of what you believe they can offer you, because of the perceived influence that they carry, when you treat, why should your conscience say, alarm, you are sinning. This does not fit who you are. You're in Christ. You're a kingdom missionary. You're one who confesses the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the King, and the Lord of glory. Why is that? Well, these three reasons are the reasons that our alarm clock or our alarm system, rather, should go off in the face of favoritism. We're going to find them, I hope, right on the pages, right on the surface here of the page of our Bible. Verse number five, he begins by saying, listen. And I love it that it says, listen, it's listen up. Don't miss this. Let me catch your attention. Listen, my beloved brothers. Listen, my loved ones flock that's been scattered by persecution has not god chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man reason number one that favoritism ought never to be held in the same hand as the faith in the lord jesus christ the lord of glory reason number one favoritism is anti-gospel It is anti-gospel. When you play favorites, brothers and sisters, when you discriminate in a positive sense towards certain people because of what you believe their value is, you are living in an anti-gospel way of life. You are thinking anti-gospel thoughts. You are evaluating people with anti-gospel evaluations. Your worldview is being misinformed by your culture rather than being rightly informed by your scriptures, the mind of God. Favoritism is anti-gospel. Notice why that's true in verse number five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That's a rhetorical question. Has he? Yes. God did not play favorites. God chose those who were poor in spirit, the bankrupt, those who are destitute and desperate. Those are the ones that the Beatitudes tell us receive his grace. Those are the ones that he has showered with his love. The gospel is anything but a game of favorites. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, it was not because God saw you and thought, Whoa, I need that person to be on my team. You say, well, that's silly. I never would think that. Really? Then why do we act that way? If we live with that mentality, we are living in a way that is anti-gospel. Let me show you this a little more clearly. Flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's read a couple of verses here that we just recently have read these verses actually in our scripture reading. Public reading. It's been several weeks, I guess, now. Verse number 18 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins an argument for the gospel. And he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He carries on to say that God has, with the gospel, made foolish the wisdom of the world, of the wise. He goes on then in verse number 26. To say this, for consider your calling brothers, okay? Let's just, let's get very realistic and let's get very open and honest this morning. Consider your calling, all right? You, personally. Um, 
Let's put your name or my name in there. For consider, Adam, your calling. What's true about my calling? What's true about our church's calling as God's people? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's the heart of the gospel. Here's who's saved by God. Nobodies or somebodies who figure out they're nobodies. That's it, period. Those are the only groups. You got nobodies who are nobodies in every way. Or you got somebodies in the cultural sense of somebodies who come to the end of themselves and recognize their nobody status before a holy judge at the higher throne that we sang about. So the gospel was not based upon your clothes. It wasn't based upon what God saw your success in business was going to be. It wasn't based upon your personality and how winsome you are and how effective you could be. God does not look at TV personalities and think, I better get them so that they can evangelize because there's going to be so much more influential. He doesn't do that. That's what we do. And that flows from sinful thinking. The gospel does not play favorites. Therefore, favoritism is anti-gospel. And James is really clear in his argument. He's saying, if God doesn't do this in saving you, why would you do this in relationship to others? Favoritism flies directly in the face of the gospel. God's promises are to anyone who comes to the end of themselves and fall before him in desperation. He honors the poor while favoritism dishonors the poor. Favoritism is opposed to the very character and nature of our salvation. Okay, understand this? When you play favorites at work, when you butter up the person that you think has the status to improve your circumstance, when you treat certain people differently in the line at the supermarket because of what they're wearing or what they look like, when you come into the assembly and the meetings here on the Lord's Day, and you go to certain people and you don't go to other people because the certain people that you go to are more influential. They're more noticeable. They have gold rings on and they have fine clothes on. You are living and I am living in a way that is anti-gospel. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to live as kingdom missionaries, we cannot live with ethnic prejudice and we cannot live with status prejudice either. These are anti-christian activities number two it goes on beginning in the middle of verse number six we find are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called so first of all favoritism is anti-gospel but secondly favoritism is anti-reason that was the nicest way i could say stupid doesn't make any sense. That's what James says here. He says, are you thinking clearly? Why did you run to the guy who came in the tricked out chariot with the Gucci clothes on? Why? Aren't those the kind of people that persecute you and blaspheme Christ? Aren't they the ones that oppress you? Why would you go and show favoritism to them? Favoritism is not only anti-gospel. Secondly, James presents an argument that 
Favoritism is anti-reason. Rich people dominate poor people. Rich people punish poor people. And rich people slander poor people. That was true in Jerusalem and the scattered areas. And that is true today. Right here in our culture. And as God's people, as those who have gathered to worship God and to set our hearts in line with God's heart and to set our thoughts in line with God's thoughts and to have our character be a mirror of the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who made the Father known to us. That's why we've come here today. It would be ridiculous for us. It does not make sense for us. It is anti-reason for us to live with favoritism while we profess faith in the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of glory. James says in verse number six, in the second half of the verse, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? It was the wealthy of the society who oppressed the poor Christians who had been run out of their homes and scattered all over the place. And the ones who drag you into court are not the powerful, the the rich, the ones with the status, the ones who dominate you, who drag you in and accuse you before a court. In verse number seven, he's just heaping it on. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And the honorable name is what name? Jesus. What is blasphemy? It's to say that Jesus is not God, that he's in a tomb somewhere. That he was a good guy, but you're crazy to be radical for him. He's not the son of God. He's just a son of God. He's not the God man. He's just a created being who was a good teacher and did some great miracles. In this society and in this experience of the church scattered out of Jerusalem, James was aware that it was the rich who were Normally the ones responsible for dominating, punishing, and slandering the Christians. A.K.A. the poor. This is where things get confusing for us. Because we have had so little cost for the gospel. That within our culture, we exist almost just as a normal part of culture. These believers knew nothing of that. They were persecuted and they were scattered. It is anti-reason to think... That status is something to be honored when status means usually that the one with the status dominates, punishes, and slanders the poor. Isn't this amazing? But this is so true. I remember this and I shared this. We studied this text this last week or two weeks ago with the students. And I remember this in my experience as a young person. um, The earliest fruits of this that I can remember. Although this has permeated through my life, no doubt, because of the effects of sin. We often pour our time and energy into honoring, sweetening the ones who are the cruelest, most selfish, mean people around us. It never ceased to amaze me that in school, especially in the younger grades and no doubt into the high school years as well, often it was the one who was the biggest bully, who was the meanest person, who everyone tried to honor. That just doesn't make any sense. He's mean. He's mean. Like, why are you buttering up? Why are you saying, come sit by me? Come sit with me at lunch. Come do do what I'm doing. Come be by me. Because you believe that the one who is cruel and mean in those years is also the one who holds status. He holds power. He holds influence. And you want to be identified with that individual. 
In the church, this has no place. In the people of God, this has no place. In the children of Christ, this has no place. Favoritism is ungodly. And though the word is not allowed to be used in my house, it's just plain stupid. Okay? doesn't make any sense. It's anti-gospel, and it is anti-reason. And folks, the implications are staggering. But we'll get to those in a minute. Verse number 8 picks up in James chapter 2 with the third reason that we should be aware and set aside favoritism as God's people. Verse number 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is the right thing. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's just pause there and let's present the third argument that James gives. Favoritism is anti-gospel. It is anti-reason. And thirdly, and most critically, favoritism is anti-Christ. It is anti-Christ. And what Christian would say that the mark of my life is an activity that is anti-Christ? This should alarm us. This should awaken our conscience. This should allow for our sin to be seen clearly. James says here that if you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Who presents the royal law according to the Scriptures? It is Jesus the Messiah. Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. The greatest commandments. And this is the second that is not unlike the first. Love the Lord your God with all your being. And secondly... Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ commanded impartial love. When you play favorites, you are disobeying and dishonoring Christ. You are living outside the bounds of reason. You are living outside the bounds of the gospel. And you are living an anti-Christ attitude in those moments. Favoritism rejects Christ's command. In verse number 9. It says, but if you show favoritism, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So let's just let's just get down to the nitty gritty. When we play favorites, when we set certain people up on a pedestal because we believe they have status and they they represent something of value to me. We discard and ignore those who don't fit the profile. There's only one word to describe that. And it is sin. Sin. Your favoritism, my favoritism, is what took Christ to the cross. That's how serious this is. This has to be a part of our thinking when it comes to our relationship to the world around us. One sin brings the whole weight of the law of God down upon us. Verse number 10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You've broken the law. Verse number 10 is one of those evangelism memory verses. If you've committed one sin, the law is on you. You are condemned. You are judged by it. But understand the context of the one sin. And that's what is shocking. The one sin is favoritism. 
That's James' point. This is so antithetical to the gospel, to reason, and even to the person of Jesus Christ who commanded that we love our neighbors as ourselves. That is a shocking command. It would be a great case study for us as a church. Maybe this week in our grace groups as we discuss this and outside of our grace groups as we fellowship with one another. To ask ourselves, how practically are we loving our neighbors as ourselves? What are the evidences of grace in the pursuit of living this command? I mean, like really ask each other. How have you loved someone who is not a part of your family? Who is not a part of your normal sphere of loving influence? How have you loved them as you love yourself? If this is the motto of your life, if this is how you live your life, then you do well. You are fitting Christ. You are putting on the clothes of Christianity. But if you're living with favoritism and you pick and you choose who will receive that affection from you based upon what you perceive to be their external status, then you are living anti-Christ. Notice the final verses. Verse number 12 says, so speak and so act as those who who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So as a believer, as those who exist under the law of Christ, that is the law of liberty, the freedom in Christ, you will be judged under that law. It is the basis of your judgment. David spent valuable time several weeks ago discussing judgment for the believer. It's a place of grace. It's a place of reward at the Bama seat. And yet it will be the law of liberty that will come to bear on our Attitudes, our actions, our speech. And so James commends the believers scattered out. Speak, talk, and act, do like people who know the truth. This is how you should live. For judgment is without mercy. And here's the ultimate for James. And he does this almost in every one of these paragraphs. He presents the ultimate. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is what is the opposite of favoritism? It is universal mercy from you. Universal mercy from you because you have received mercy from God and mercy has to be a tagline for your life. It must be a component of who you are. Your resume before God because of his gracious work through his spirit must include mercy universally. Mercy triumphs over judgment ultimately the mercy of god is the beginning place for us to even do battle against favoritism now here we come to the conclusion with favoritism being set up as anti-gospel anti-reason and anti-christ let's just take a step behind those realities and let's ask a very intentional question of our own hearts this morning What idols of your heart lead you toward favoritism? What is it in the moment of favoritism that you are worshiping in place of Jesus Christ? What idol is being set up beside his throne in your life? So say you're the one. You're the one. The Gucci Christian comes in. Or the person who shows up, their spiritual situation is not told. 
you run to them to show favoritism because you believe that they offer some status and value for you. What is the idol that is being set up next to Christ? It's you. It's me. Favoritism ultimately is an expression of self-worship. Favoritism is saying, I am the judge. I'm the one with my evil thoughts, James says. I'm the one who evaluates who gets my favor. And I'm the one who is the recipient of favor from those whom I choose. It's about me. It's about my life. And my little statue of me is up next to the throne of Jesus Christ. And James says, that should not be. You can't hold these two together. Break down the high place and replace the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Here's a picture from the Old Testament that's a powerful one. You remember the Israelites go into the land of Canaan. They go into the promised land. And they struggle to do what God told them. They struggle to wipe out the Gentile nations. They disobey him often. But one thing that I think we misunderstand when it comes to the idolatry, when we're reading in Kings and, and, and in Samuel's words, one of the things that we miss is that we start to think of the Israelites as those who had begun to worship pagan gods. And how could they do what they did? But, you know, the reality of the matter is, is they worshiped pagan gods alongside Yahweh God, their covenant God. And consistently, if we read through our Old Testaments with careful attention, we find the men of God who have their heart singularly focused on God shattering high places. They would go into those nations and break down their idols because they wanted to reestablish the supremacy of Yahweh as the only covenant God, the only living God, the creator of the universe. As God's people, those who know Christ, who live life with Christ as Lord and the Messiah and the Lord of glory. Favoritism is an opportunity for the idol of self to be placed alongside Christ. Break down the high place. Go smash it. Take time to focus upon your heart and to set Christ at the center. Jesus Christ's image never includes favoritism. I pray that our church would be a place where the rich man is given the choice seat and the poor man is given the choice seat. You see, the conclusion here is not be mean to the poor people, put them on the floor, put them in the corner and bring the poor guy in and say, hey, I noticed you had some really ratty clothes on today. We want to honor you. That's not the that's not the end of this. The end of this is we love the rich and we love the poor because we're indiscriminate with mercy. We do not play favorites. We are impartial because God's character is impartial towards us. If God had played favorites, none of us would be his children. So this morning, I pray that you individually would look at your own heart and that I would look at my heart, rooting out the idolatry that leads to favoritism. And that our church would be marked as those who do not hold ethnic profiles because it is antithetical to the gospel and do not hold status profiles with favoritism. This has everything to do with our leadership structure at this church. We're a baby church. We're in the terrible twos coming up on the terrible twos. 
And as a baby church, understand that we as a leadership are committed to the biblical model of leadership, not a status-driven model of leadership. This has everything to do with how you fellowship with believers. Encouraging you to open your home. Open your home to people that you wouldn't normally open your home to because it matches the character of the gospel. It's a, it's a reflection of the nature of your salvation. It mirrors your understanding of who God is in relation to you. And understand this finally. As we've said so many times, you say what you say and you do what you do because you think what you think. And you think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, about His Word, about yourself. Do not think that your favoritistic thinking and words and actions are somehow separated from your heart. Trace the fruit of sin back to the root of sin and deal with it according to the grace that's available to you from the cross. Worship the impartial Savior. The one who at the cross looked at the people who were abusing him and said, Father, forgive them. May that kind of mercy mark us as God's people, whether it be with ethnic groups that are in our culture identified as less than us, or whether it be social groups and people who live in a different social status than us. May we be Christ's people, not comfortable Americans, but Christians. Set aside our culture living for our Christ.